This week on What the Hack with Adam Levin, we're talking with Dr. David Maiman of Georgia State University about the role that driver's licenses play in identity theft. Uh, how's, uh, how's life now that everybody has your uh, driver's license, Travis? Not great. I'm actually pretty paranoid about it. So the news story was that driver's license information in Oregon, Louisiana, as well as a number of federal agencies had been compromised in the past few days. Totally cool. Well, um, good thing they can't do anything with driver's license information. Oh, they can. That's right. They can yeah. do lots of stuff with your driver's license. <laughs> yeah, and apparently it was pretty all-encompassing. So everyone in the state with a driver's license, along with the last four digits of their social security number, their name, address. Well, nobody was left behind. Well, this is it's convenient then that Adam found us this week's guest from Georgia State University. We couldn't possibly be better situated to talk about this thing that is just about to ruin your life, Travis. We And with that, welcome to What the Hack, a show about hackers, scammers, and the people they go after. I'm Adam Levin. I'm Bo Friedlander. And I'm Travis Taylor. Dr. Maiman, welcome to our show. We're very excited to have you. So you're an expert on identity theft. Does that mean you're also a criminal psychologist, a sociologist? No. So, so first of all, an expert in identity theft, I think the criminals be expert in identity theft. I'm just trying well, to understand <laughs> what is it that these guys are doing and working on and um, ways to protect ourselves, ways to protect organizations from the real expert. I am a sociologist uh, who converted to criminologist. But at the end of it, criminologists are very interdisciplinary in the way they do their work. So a lot of sociology, a lot of psychology, a lot of geography, a lot of information science, a lot of computer science, a lot of cybersecurity. As a criminologist, you began uh, your work years ago looking at the effects of these crimes or the kinds of people that commit them. What was your focus? Yeah, when I first started my academic career, I really tried to understand how the interaction between sociological factors, psychological factors, contributes to deviant outcomes among adolescents and youth. And what sort of crimes were you looking at back then? So at the beginning of my career, I was focusing more on violent crimes, simple assaults, aggravated assault. And what drew you into this field in the first place? So when I was a kid, I, I grew up in a crappy neighborhood and uh, many of my friends turned out to be criminals. And I really mm -hmm. tried to figure out why what prevented me from being on their side? Sure. And was that because they made so much more money than you did? Or no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> that's no, that that that's because they were smarter, maybe than I. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and they knew how they uh, they simply knew how to sort of play play the game, evading detection in, in a better way than I. What did you find? What differentiated you from, let's say, your friends who went into crime? To tell you the truth, researching this for a while, I simply licked the kahunas to do what my, my other friends did. Once you start diving into this and understanding criminological theories and all that, I, it looks like what, there, there are a couple of things there, right? That differentiated me from them with respect to the willingness to break the law. I think the first one is attachment to family. I was very attached to, I'm very attached to uh, my family and the image of my father telling me, don't embarrass me, was always there. I think my other 
friends, my peers, maybe did not have the same level of attachment to their family. The other thing is, is the willingness to take risks. I'm very conservative in my willingness to take risks. And uh, I, I find that many of my former friends were more willing to gamble. I think these are the major things which nudged me into different direction than the direction that some of my friends decided to take. What is the difference you see between violent criminals and nonviolent criminals? People who commit scams, who hide behind a computer screen and do their dirty deeds. There's, uh, there's actually some research on this issue. It looks like the fraudsters tend to be older, tend to be, we tend to have uh, a higher representation of female among fraudsters, go figure. Uh, they tend to be more educated and uh, they tend to have better ability planning ahead than violent offenders. This is essentially what the research, and not my research, but the research uh, which uh, other folks produced uh, and published says about the differences between violent and nonviolent offenders. And when you say older, is that like a 18 to 25, 25 to 40, or what age range are you uh, referring to? So violent offender, if you think about the profile, it'll be adolescents to, I would say, 30. Mm -hmm. Fraudsters, we're talking about 24 to 40, with heavy sort of emphasis on older folks. We're talking about usually folks 27 to 40, something like that. How did you get involved with identity theft? I mean, I, I started with interest in violent crime and suicide, and then when I graduated, I, I didn't want to study that anymore. And I wanted to just stop doing what I was doing back then, which was the first year in my academic career. I was a professor in the University of Miami. So I told my wife, I, I, wanna, I don't want to do it anymore. I wanna, I'm not interested. And what I really wanted to do back then uh, was to uh, go to Australia and uh, chase the giant squid. Back then, there weren't too many images and videos of the giant squid. And I don't know if you know, the giant squid is this, is this beast. Amazing, huge eyes. And that creature lives in the deep. And to tell the truth, I'm, I think of myself as a scientist because I really am curious about the world and whatever we have around us. And so what I really wanted to do was I wanted to discover things and I wanted to get into a submarine, chase the giant squid, understand the angler fish, all the, all the different types of angler fishes that they're out there and really explore the deeps. But when I approached my wife with this idea, she said, listen, if you wanna, if, I don't wanna be poor for four more years, so go ahead, do that, <laughs> but do it by yourself. I'm not joining you for that trip. So I, I love my wife, I love my kids, and I, I had, we talked about attachment earlier, right? I shifted my attachment or expanded my attachment to my, my family, my wife and kids. So I decided that I'm not gonna do that. I will continue to do criminological research, but I had to find something that will make me happy. And that is where I found cybercrime. Back then, there wasn't really a whole lot of good research in, in focusing on those specific crimes. And I decided that this area is potentially the niche I could study and replace it with the deeps. <laughs> so you traded your anglerfish for catfish. But so David, when was this? When, when are we talking about? That was uh, around 2010, the end of 2010, beginning of 2011. So very early on, really, in the trajectory of what has now become a scourge. Yeah, very early in my career. And to tell the truth, I got lucky in the sense that I was able to build a 
body of research, which helps carry me till today. One thing that we've heard time and again from some of the guests that we've had on the show is that COVID has had a massive impact on uh, cybercrime and scams in general. I was just wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, I, I, I did a lot of research uh, before COVID. And one of the interesting things in my career that happened before COVID is I got this opportunity to uh, join Georgia State and open my own research center and work with my own uh, group. And we moved from Maryland to Atlanta in 2018. Uh, it was the late 2018, the beginning of 2019, COVID hit 2020. And so what happened in this year long, year and a half long window that, that we had between my move to Atlanta and COVID hitting was me opening the group and recruiting students working on evidence-based cybersecurity projects, one of the projects was focused on the darknet and online markets and communication platform. So during that year and a half long period, I had many students diving into those markets, establishing presence under fictitious identities, listening to what people were saying and collecting massive amounts of, of data on a daily basis. So when COVID hit, we saw how the markets respond to that. We saw how the vendors responding to it, how the drug dealers responded to that, how the fraudsters responded to that, how the customer responded to that, how the market adjusted. And this is something we do till today. I mean, we still study those markets, we still study the vendors, the, the customers on a systematic manner. But because we were doing a lot before COVID, we had a lot to compare when COVID actually hit. So one of the first thing we, we've seen on the markets when COVID hit was drug dealers shifting gears and offering all kinds of new commodities for sale. For example, some of the drug dealers we, we monitored at the beginning of the pandemic focused on selling toilet papers. They were focused on selling face masks. They were focused on, on selling Clorox and other types of sanitizers, right? So it was really interesting to see how the market responded to uh, the shortage of commodities we had in the legitimate economy, right? So face masks was one of the things that, we, that, that blew our mind, right? Because at some point here in the United States, you went to Target, you went wherever, and you couldn't find face masks. And then you've seen those criminals offering boxes of face masks for sale. And they uploaded videos with videos showing their storages and, and the amount of boxes they have with face masks. And we're trying to figure out how these guys are getting those face masks where we all, you know, struggle to find one. And, and so we ran an investigation and started talking to people on the markets. And quite quickly, we, we realized how they do that. Essentially, most of the masks came from Thailand. And what the criminals were doing was they went to uh, trash cans and they took the uh, used face masks, washed them, ironed them, and then shipped them to whoever was interested in that. So really interesting angle and adoption of the market to uh, the need that we all had in face masks. That is so disturbing, but also interesting. I remember when uh, I remember when people were like, "Oh, it's nothing," and every fiber of my Ashkenazi jeans were like, "It's something. Are you nuts?" 
Anyway, so I went to Home Depot because, you know, I am definitely one of the world's biggest hypochondriacs and I found masks and I bought some, but I only got 20 because I'm a moral person and I didn't want to hoard them. You know, I didn't even know how we were going to be using them yet. And the next time I went back, it was a week later, they were all gone, sold out. And there was a guy outside with a truckload of them selling them for, you know, an astronomical price. It was a price gouger, criminal. During a crisis to be gouging prices is criminal. Well, the real crime actually turns out, thank you, Professor Mayman, was uh, people pulling them out of the garbage, cleaning them, and reselling them. You've ruined my day, Professor Mayman. <laughs> so, Bo and Adam, you guys know I'm a bit of a uh, privacy geek, if you will. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you are. Yeah, totally. I, I really just don't like the idea that just about anyone can find you online, can find out where you live or your email address, or your phone number or anything. I just think that entire idea is super creepy. There's so much of my data already out there, but is there something that you can do? Yeah, actually, you can use Delete Me. Delete Me is a service that pretty much does the heavy lifting for you, where they go to all the data brokers that they have on file and uh, just pull your data and delete it on a regular basis. I use it. I like it. And they make it quick, easy, and safe to remove your personal data online. Well, yeah, with these data brokers, they can accumulate huge amounts of your personally identifiable information. And if all that information gets into the hands of a bad actor, that opens you up to a lot of risk. And if you act now, you can get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and use promo code WTH. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash WTH and enter promo code WTH at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash WTH, promo code WTH, which stands for What the Hack. And we thank you for supporting Delete Me and What the Hack. Hey guys, have you heard about this new thing that HackerOne is doing? They're red teaming AI. What does that even mean, red teaming AI? Well, you know what red teaming is, right? Yeah, it's when you send in a group of, you know, white hat hackers basically to go in and try and break something. Right, so in this case, they're offering their services to red team companies that have AI-based products. So does that mean they're trying to get the AI that companies use to divulge something that it shouldn't be divulging? Yeah, 100%. AI uses something called large language models, which means that they go through huge amounts of data in order to be able to come to conclusions and be able to interact with customers sort of in a human way. Unfortunately, that means that there's a lot of room for error, especially if it's trade secrets or something involving security. I feel like I could probably trick AI with some cool questions. So HackerOne, if you're looking for somebody to red team, I will red team with them because I like it a lot. Well, as, as we like to say, if you can take Bo off our hands, please take him. Well, even if they were to take Bo off our hands, HackerOne does have over 750 active hackers, and they're ethical. Surely one of them like went on a date and ghosted or something <laughs> like that. They're not all ethical. They can't be. Yeah, Bo, I'm, I'm not sure you understand what ethical hacker means. Or ad reads. To find out more, just go to HackerOne.com slash AI. That's HackerOne.com slash AI. Welcome back. Just before the break, we were talking to Dr. Maimon about some of the scams that went wild during COVID, and in particular, those involving the sale of protective gear at exorbitant prices, which is disgusting on so many levels. Wasn't there even a larger market for fraudulent driver's licenses than what we normally see? So, yeah. 
To answer the question shortly, yes. How did driver's license related scams become so prevalent during the pandemic? So we've been monitoring the market systematically on a daily basis, and we've seen the criminals working on different types of crimes, different types of frauds throughout the pandemic. Fairly early to the pandemic, we're talking about mid-2022, we started to see many fraudsters uploading screenshots of their fraudulent applications to unemployment and SBA loans. We started to see an increase in the number of screenshots, the number of videos that these guys were uploading. We saw an increase in the volume of tutorials these guys were uploading. And at some point with one of our sponsors, what we did was we started to count the number of application we've seen, number of videos we've seen, numbers of SBA loan application we've seen per state. And we started doing this in a systematic manner. We started to track things in 2020 with respect to unemployment benefits requests that we've seen, the videos, the screenshots that the criminals uploaded from the actual website where they applied for unemployment, as well as submitted the SBA loans. And we started to count the number of videos, the number of posts we've seen coming from all over the country. In early 2020, mid 2020, it wasn't really a whole lot going on. But in late 2020, the beginning of 2021, we started to see how things were exploding and diffusing all around the country. And of course, one of the things that we've seen playing a very important role in the diffusion of those applications was the fake driver licenses that the criminals were able to manufacture very cheaply, very quickly, in very high quality. In many of the applications, we've seen the criminals presenting a driver license, a fake driver license with an identity on it, and we've seen how they used the driver license to simply type in and record all the information they needed to record on the Department of Labor, right, of all the relevant states, websites, and simply getting improved uh, in very high rate. At some point, and I would say at the beginning of this, we started to see criminals selling tutorials of how to bypass some of the security mechanism that many states embraced and deployed in the context of their verification process. And we started shouting all over the place, hey, I mean, these guys know how to bypass this company's security mechanism and that company's security mechanism. And unfortunately, we didn't get too much attention to uh, our calls. I think uh, one of the biggest questions I have, and I know it's not really possible to get inside every scammer's head, but what was motivating them between identity theft and the uh, government program scams and the like? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, they want money. But what about the guys doing the tutorials and the like? So those guys were doing tutorials. They, 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 you have to understand, I mean, at this point, and even earlier, right, when we were talking about 2020, we were talking about a very sophisticated supply chain. So we're not, we're not talking about the teenager who are looking to just kill some time, and so they submit this fraudulent application trying to get some money from the government. No, we're not there anymore. And we weren't there in 2020. We were 
experiencing the operation of very sophisticated supply chains, which had access to our identities, took our identities, manufactured fake driver licenses with the criminal images, bypassing all the security mechanisms you can imagine in order to get this money. So profit is the number one reason for why these guys are doing this. What we are seeing out there, the amount of money we're seeing out there, you know, we are talking about folks doing it for profit. It's easy. There's really no deterrence right now. So the probability that they will be caught for their operation and go to jail is relatively low. In, in terms of potential profits, these guys can make millions of dollars and invest not a whole lot of time in the operation. And if you're listening, guys out there, and you're going to go and try your hand at some of these crimes, just remember that David and the whole crew at What The Hack get 25% of everything you bring in. So we'll take that via Venmo or through Bitcoin. Wait, wait, wait. Only 25%? Come on. Last time we tried to take more, it, we ended up almost becoming violent criminals. <laughs> so no. What are some of the common methods that people use in order to create fake driver's licenses and then authenticate fraudulent identities? Uh, so, so again, at this point, we're talking about a very elaborated operation, fetching the identities, using the identities in order to manufacture the fake driver licenses, sometimes manufacturing fake documents, which will allow you to go to the DMV office and simply get tested, take the driving test and get a real driver license on the fictitious identity. Then you can really do a lot oh, of damage. We wow. see that happens a lot. So the operation is so sophisticated and the supply chain is, is so elaborated at this point where you have producers, the individuals who have get the identities from all, kind, from all kind of sources, including, of course, the data dumps that we're all familiar with from different breaches that the media keeps talking about every now and then. But to tell the truth, now, most of the identities we are getting, or the criminals are getting, really comes from the street. I'm sure you guys know, at this point in our society, we have some kind of a crisis with respect to the way the mail is being delivered to our houses, a lot of stolen mail, a lot of what is going through that stolen mail are, are identities. And so, think about the checks people send in order to pay their bills. Think about the debit cards that banks are sending to their customers in order to start working with their bank accounts. Think about the huge number of identities that are being delivered physically, right? From one residential environment to a company or whatever, the criminals target those envelopes. And so now they have on their disposal millions of identities that they can use with not a problem. Do you think, for instance, that more of existing licenses are altered or they're making totally new licenses whole cloth? What do you see more of? So in terms of the suppliers, right, those individuals who fetch the identity. So, so if, if you want to have a fake driver license, you have to have an identity to work with. So you need to have suppliers. So one of the suppliers we're familiar with and that we see and traditional suppliers are the hackers. They have a data dumps that you can purchase for reasonable prices. And then you have a million of identities that you can start working with. 
What changed during the last three years or so is, is the availability of identities on the street in a different manner than it was in the past, where you can think about the Russian and the Chinese and the North Korean and all these uh, getting access to those dumps with our identities and using them in order to open a new bank account and try to steal some money from the banks and open credit lines on our behalf. Now we have local groups who have access to all those stolen identities. And they also can physically get inside the bank with a fake driver license and open a bank account and then establish credit line and ask for a loan and open a business and then take another loan on behalf of the business and so on and so forth. What we're seeing today is definitely when we are looking at the platforms we oversee, we see a very dramatic increase in the volume of fake driver licenses that these criminals manufacture. But what changed in comparison to what we've seen in the past is the quality of the driver licenses. David, so my children are, one of them is old enough to drink and one of them is not old enough to drink. Both of them, when they were not old enough to drink, had IDs that allowed them to drink legally, illegally, because they were able to get driver's licenses. And these driver's licenses were very good. They scanned. If they scanned it at the bar, it showed up as a valid driver's license. They paid $60 for them. And my daughter recently pointed out, dad, $60 is a lot for a 15-year-old. It's not very much for a criminal. Is that what we're talking about? Is, it, is, that, is, it, is, it, is, it, is that the kind of ID that you're talking about? We're talking about ideas which are even more sophisticated and even higher quality than the driver license that you just described. So most of the driver licenses will definitely go through the scan, but some of the driver licenses or many of the driver licenses that we see can also have the UV on them. And when, once you, the driver license, uh, turn on the UV light, you see all the security controls that the states need to have on the driver licenses. It's mind-boggling to see how sophisticated and how good those driver licenses are in terms of the security controls that the criminals know they need to have on those driver licenses. Very difficult, very complicated to detect fake licenses, especially when you don't have the appropriate means to do that. Now, remember, one of the things we were talking about earlier is that some criminals, they print fake utility bills, they print fake social security cards, and they actually go to the DMV office, take the driving test, and they get the real driver license with all the controls. What are you going to do about that? I mean, you have a, you have a, you have fictitious idea, fictitious identity with real driver license, and now the person who owns the driver license can start doing some damage. We know that these driver's licenses played an enormous role in unemployment compensation fraud. So, what are some of the weaknesses in the unemployment compensation system that they were able to exploit effectively? Folks. Uh, simply did not have the appropriate way to verify uh, the identity of those individuals who applied for the unemployment benefit as well as for the SBA loans. I know that there were attempts to hire uh, all those companies. Uh, I know that the companies that uh, many states have hired promised a lot, but at the end of the day, uh, if you listen to some of the congressional hearings, uh, you, you know by now that many of those companies simply fail to deliver on their promises. And there was also the element of time. So people were actually out of work and needed money and they needed these benefits and the states had to move 
quickly, and that's always a recipe for disaster or a recipe for success for a criminal, no? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the fact that you have people doing things fast without thinking about this, without having the appropriate verification process, played a very important role. The very sad outcome, we're talking about the greatest heist of all time at this point. Some of the estimates we're talking about for, of a theft of $140 billion over a period of, of two months. That's a lot of money, especially if you think about other famous heists that we had in our society, like the Bernie Madoff heist and a few others, $145 billion that we printed and we simply gave the presents to the criminals. So we know that so many people were negatively affected by this. There were all kinds of repercussions of this. What steps should we be taking in order to support and help those victims recover from these scams? So SBA loans, I may be in the better position to discuss because those loans, the victims really need to return to the government. In the context of unemployment benefits, uh, at the end of the day, it is my understanding that if you've been sent a check or the criminal have been sent a check under your name, you're not liable. What is in jeopardy at the end of the day is your identity. So the criminal now have your identity and he, can, he or she can start manufacturing driver licenses with your name on and then open bank accounts, take credit lines, uh, take loans under your name and so on and so forth. Um, and there's also the chance that they could use it to commit a crime and then give my identity as the person who did the crime, yes? Think about what you can do with a driver license, a fake driver license. You can go into a, a gun shop, purchase a gun under my name, commit a crime, and then the gun is registered to me. Leave the gun in the crime scene. The gun is registered to me. So I'm the first person that the police will actually come and start investigating. Think about the health insurance and medical costs that a person may be liable. There's the issue of identity theft in our country touches so many, so many areas. And unfortunately, I don't see us really thinking about a, an effective way to come up with a solution that will address all these issues. David, it sounds to me that the that driver's licenses in many very crucial ways have replaced our social security numbers as the skeleton key to all kinds of identity-related crime. So given the fact that it is quite possible with all these data dumps and compromises that any one of us could be the victim of this sort of identity crime, what should people do to stay safe in this new threat environment? It's, it's a great question. I think that the most important thing for folks to do is uh, purchase an identity theft protection plan. There's several companies out there, and the protection plan is quite good. The second step is, of course, freeze all your credit line. Make sure that nobody can take a loan under your name. That is a, is a very important thing folks need to do. So the last thing that people should be aware of is Check System. It's a very important organization that help track the bank accounts that are signed under their identity. If you place a credit freeze on your, on, on your credit lines, that essentially means that no one can take a loan under your name. And every time that a company will search for your credit score, you will get a ping. And so you will know that someone has looked at your identity. But the fact that no one will be able to take a loan or a mortgage under your name doesn't necessarily mean that they cannot 
open a bank account under your name. That is way easier than you can think of. And so Check System is this organization which monitors the bank accounts that each identity in our society has and keep track on that. And I think folks needs to be aware of this resource because if someone did open a bank account under your name, one of the things that we are seeing the criminals do is they simply grow the account and then they sell the account for folks who launder money or use the accounts for any other types of nefarious purposes. And at the end of the day, it's your name that is under the account. So people definitely have to pay atten attention to uh, check system and ask for reports that check system produce just to make sure that their name is not being used to open a bank account in other states. Doesn't check systems also track overdrafts that go on for a long time to the point where they shut the account? Yes, uh, that's part of what they do, yeah. I strongly recommend folks to at least ask for an initial report of the number of bank accounts which are associated with their name and then take it from them. If they identify bank accounts that they're not familiar with, bank accounts that they haven't opened, they should definitely do something about that. And it's not spelled C-H-E-C-K-S. That's right. It's spelled C-H-E-X. Adam, how are you moving into 2024? Oh man, I'm ripped, ready to go. So what are you gonna do about it? Travis already did something about it. He got one of these electric e-bikes that are called, easy to remember, electric e-bike. It's really well built. It looks awesome. It folds up, so it saves space in your house. It rides just like a regular bike, but if you're going up hills and you need things to be a little bit easier, it gives you a boost. When he got his bike, the first thing that I saw was the financing could be as low as $49 a month. It ships free. It comes fully assembled. I'm thinking about getting one for my son. It adds a lot of activity to everyday life. You can run errands on it. And on one charge, you can get up to 150 miles. That's really impressive. And the speed can hit up to 28 miles an hour. So explore 2024 with electric e-bikes, the most accessible and adventurous e-bikes ever. Visit electricebikes.com and be sure to mention that What the Hack with Adam Levin sent you in the post-checkout survey. That's L-E-C-T-R-I-C ebikes.com. David, we can't thank you enough for being on the show. I mean, it was extremely enlightening. We love your take on these things. And where should people go if they want to learn more about you or Georgia State University's work in this area? To learn more about what we do, folks can go to ebcs.gsu.edu. That's ebcs.gsu.edu. We'll put a link up to that on our website as well. Thank you. When these types of identity theft happen, a lot of people say, what can we do to help the people who are victims of this? Well, it turns out there's a ton, actually. I think uh, government agencies and uh, nonprofits need to establish some victim support services to provide just not just counseling, but also legal assistance and financial guidance. I think a lot of people end up feeling really lost in this whole process. That's true. And that part of that is is making it easier to report what happened and try to get right again. Plus, it's also important that we enhance our education programs. we got to make people more aware. Part of that is 
we got to financial institutions and credit bureaus need to get into a more of a collaborative mode, right? They need to start thinking like, okay, this is a group effort here. We have to help people stay safe and they have to be proactive in keeping themselves safe. And at the same time, we really need to make the legal protections for victims stronger. I mean, I know this does affect the organizations, but the uh, individuals who this stuff is happening to can find themselves in a lot of trouble. They also need stronger support programs. There's not enough victim support. There's not enough of anything. There's a, do you know what there's enough of? Crime. That's it. <laughs> there's enough. There's plenty of crime happening. There's not a lot of let's stop the crime. And you know, that's why we do the show. That's why people listen to the show. And anybody who's listening to this show is part of the solution. That's how I see it. No, they really are. And as I've said for years, it's all about the three C's cooperation, communication, and collaboration. Consumers, government, businesses, media, all together. Educate, support, stand up for the people who have been victimized. Okay, well, all right then. Travis, you're screwed. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> I have the entire states of uh, Oregon and Louisiana to uh, say the same with me. So, um, Travis, it's, it's not just you. You're joined by millions of other Americans in the South and the West. <laughs> well, it's a good thing we just learned about check systems. Um, so, Travis, what are you going to do now? Uh, we're going to talk about it in the tinfoil swan. That's true. You know, the main thing that Travis is always already doing, I mean, he literally walks around with his shoulders up, his head down, his eyes squinted, like someone's about to hit him in the back of the head. <laughs> you did that all the time when I was interning for you. <laughs> oh, oh, man. You know, the, the bitter truth is that Travis would wait until I wasn't paying attention while we were walking home from lunch, which I bought him every day at a pretty nice restaurant, and would push me into the wall of a building. <laughs> <laughs> you had it coming. <laughs> so... Anyway, um, it is it is sort of, you know, you have to kind of walk around like that nowadays. It is true. We're all we're all walking around with targets on our backs. And because of that, we got to behave as though there's a target on our back and be careful. Think about the fact that we're all just one head slap away from being in total disaster. <laughs> Indeed. And with that, our tinfoil swat. Our paranoid takeaway to keep you safe online. What is on your mind, Travis? Many things, but I have to make a confession. Travis, come on. You're perfect. No, no, no. No, he's not. Well, thanks for the uh, vote of confidence there, Bo. But seriously, I had never heard of check systems before David mentioned it in this episode. Yep, me neither. Wait, I finally know something you guys don't? What is it? Okay, look, check systems is really important especially these days where there are so many crimes revolving around bank accounts. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad there's something out there like a credit report for checking accounts and the like. I just had never heard of it. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it either. And also, by the way, I bet you 10 bucks Adam hasn't used it. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did take a look at the site and I have one issue with it. Oh my gosh, again, same. It is not a very intuitive site. Yeah, I found it to be pretty confusing. What's the confusion? I mean, the check system website can either give you a disclosure report or a consumer score. The disclosure report lets you know about any bank accounts that are associated with your identity. You can check it once a year for free. Did you hear that? Free. Yeah, yeah. 
Listen, I got that. If someone opened an account in your name or is trying to pass bad checks on your account, or if you've had a lot of overdrafts, you see all that activity. Concept makes sense. The execution? Yeah, not so much. And then there's the consumer score. Yeah, well, the consumer score is supposed to gauge any bad activity on your accounts and ding you for them. It's not unlike a credit score. I mean, it's based on your checking and savings account activity instead of credit. Unlike your credit score, it's on a scale of 100 to 899. And while it's good to be able to see where you stand on your finances, it can be really important to know if somebody opened a bank account in your name. Check systems can also tell you if a financial account in your name is being used to commit fraud. Yeah, and ideally it would just be a question of going to checksystems.com. Yeah, but it is 100% not a question of going to checksystems.com. <laughs> I did it. The site is not as easy to use as it should be. And you, I had no idea where, you know, what I, what I was doing or why I was there when I was there. Same. But uh, there was one silver lining that I found. And I was kind of banging my way into signing up and checking my score. And then when I finally got there, it did tell me that I already had a security freeze in place. So without my PIN, you can't really open a new account in uh, my name, at least. Well, I mean, that's good. When I went there, Travis, I found <laughs> they didn't have enough information about me to make a call. So I was like, okay, so I guess there's no fraud at least, right? Here's the thing. I guess it's worth making it a part of your digital hygiene. Check systems, get better at what you do, man. You guys are really kind of a little rough around the edges. In fact, I would have to say, if you're going to use it now, you might want to have a professional walk you through it. Don't call me. <laughs> That's a good idea. And you know, most insurance companies and many employers now offer identity protection and identity theft remediation services as a benefit. And if they do, somebody else, a professional, is going to be able to handle the confusing parts for you. You know, but tech systems, again, why don't you just make it less confusing? And that's our tinfoil swan. What the Hack with Adam Levin is a production of Loud Tree Media. You can find us online at adamlevin.com and on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Adam K. Levin.